about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Um, we're here today to finish our series on Elijah. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at one and two kings um, and looking at this prophet Elijah, mysterious, kind of marvelous, weird, right? I wonder what you thought as we had the passage read out for us. I presume you've had that in my absence. Um, and, and you kind of hear about Elijah just ascending into heaven, chariots of fire, wind. You're like, uh, what now? How, how do you account for the weird? Um, I was prompted to um, think about Richard Dawkins, who doesn't have a lot to say positively about Christianity. In fact, a lot of his stuff uh, appears more of a rant than anything else. But one of his maybe more fair comments, if I could say that, in his book, The God Delusion, he writes this, Much of the Bible is not systemically evil, thanks Richard, but just plain weird. Okay. How do you account for the weird? How did you kind of process what the passage had to say about Elijah? Well, Richard's got an answer for kind of the weird, his account, of, his account for the weird. In the same sentence even, he writes, you would expect this of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries, long sentence, but you get the gist of his thought. He accounts for the weird by just saying this is a bunch of mythologies just invented over time and evolved from there. Um, for some of us, that doesn't sit very well. We, we want to account for the weird in a more robust kind of way, one that kind of respects the evidence of manuscripts, um, of the evidence for the scriptures, for what's happened in history because of Israel and Jesus. And yet we still come to this passage and it's like, hmm, bizarre. Well, if Richard was here today, if one of your sceptical friends was here today, if you indeed are kind of dipping your toe into the water of church and have your own kind of significant doubts, welcome if that's you, let's work through this together. Let's kind of understand how to read this, but also how to apply it to us thousands of years later. And uh, I guess one of the issues and one of the things you'd want to go to straight away is where's the evidence for this? We can't just go to the kind of shores of the Jordan waters and say, look, there's the sand scorched by the fiery chariots. We can't do that. But if we can just start with the hypothetical mind experiment, if you're open to the idea that there is more to this world than blind, pitiless fate, to quote Richard again, If there is a God who created this world, who is separate to this world and still involved in this world, you'd expect some weird stuff to happen, some stuff that's beyond the mechanical cause and effect of this world, the natural order of things, as God reveals his godness in it. That wouldn't be too much of a stretch to actually posit that logic. Well, if that is the case, then it's possible that this weird passage might actually give us a window into a greater reality of things than just the cause of effect of this natural world. Maybe this is actually a window into the cosmic reality of heaven and earth, which is something I'm going to speak a bit about today. I remember sharing my story about Jesus with a guy at Sydney Uni. So when I was a student at Sydney Uni, I would occasionally just walk up to random people and just ask them what they thought about Jesus. Um, That's a normal thing to do, right? And um, sometimes I'd be told very explicitly what people think about Jesus, and that's all right. Um, Sometimes people would just say, no, thank you. And this one guy, this Asian guy, said to me, he goes, I've never heard of Jesus. And I said, really? I said, tell us a bit of your story, like, what, what, like basically where you've been hiding. And um, he said, look, I've, I've, I'm from China. I've just arrived in Sydney three weeks ago. And I was like, oh, wow. I said, um, could I tell you a bit about Jesus? And he's like, okay. I was like, oh, this is good. 
So we kind of do the three-minute version of kind of just why Jesus is good news, and I get to the crucifixion, and he stops me. And he says, is this the story where he rises from the dead? And I said, yeah, that's the one, thinking, yay, except the tone was a bit off. He goes, that's stupid, and walks off. Um, <laughs> I guess he wasn't just rejecting the message, the logic. He, his rejection was a, a worldview rejection. In his worldview of things, there was no room for the supernatural. We have to admit that in today's age, we swim in a worldview of naturalism, that the only things that are real are natural and can be seen and touched, and by definition, there's nothing beyond that. So that worldview rejects the idea that there is even a God beyond the universe, and especially that someone would rise from the dead. That is so unnatural and rejected by that worldview. So what do we do with that? How do we read these kind of scriptures today, and how do we live in a world that rejects, by definition, anything that's supernatural? Well, we just go back to the mind experiment, and we want to be the kind of people that just promotes a bit of curiosity, We want to be the kind of church where people go, actually, maybe there is something a little more to the story and just allow people to kind of venture into that. I wouldn't normally start with this story as kind of an explanation of all things supernatural and beyond the natural, but this is where we are today as we conclude this remarkable series of Elijah and as we look into this window of the reality of things of heaven and earth. See, it's not just about miraculous things, it's about a whole story. The Bible isn't just a kind of collection of random weird things that happened. It, sh- it shares an entire story, the story of heaven and earth, which I've already mentioned a few times. Because right back in the beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve. And he was in the garden, he was their God, and they were his people. And I don't just mean, when I say heaven, I don't just mean kind of the skies, although that's kind of what it means a bit in this passage. I actually mean God's space. When I say heaven, I mean God's space. And in the garden, back in the beginning, God's space and our space was one and the same. And it was a beautiful thing, except what happened? We said, actually, no, we don't want you anymore. And so God said, okay. He actually left earth, as it were, our space. And heaven and earth were separated. And the story of the Bible is how God's justice and love interact between these two spheres because if it was just justice he'd say okay well so be it that's just and fair that you reject me and I'll reject you forever except his love for us has meant that he's been pursuing us throughout the whole history of the world and so the story of the Old Testament the story of the whole Bible the story fulfilled in Jesus is a story of how God has been pursuing us completely other to us and yet loves us and in his mercy is invading our space as it were with love and forgiveness, and also justice. So that's where we're tracking today. Let me tell you uh, three kind of hooks to hang today's talk off as we navigate this tricky passage with the theme of heaven and earth. Um, First of all, we fear losing what we have. And that kind of makes sense, uh, especially what we have on earth. We see things around us, we love those things, we fear losing them. Number one, we fear losing what we have on earth. Number two, heaven on earth is more glorious than we expected. And then number three... Heaven on earth appears more fruitless and foolish than we expect, and somehow I'll try and wrap all that up at the end. That's where we're headed this morning. So first of all, we've been, as I said, walking alongside Elijah for the last few weeks through 1 and 2 Kings, and what we haven't really focused much on was his little kind of apprentice who joined the story at the end of 1 Kings, uh, Elisha. And Elisha has been walking with Elijah and seeing all kinds of things. And you could imagine, imagine being Elijah's apprentice, like we've been looking in as a reader of the Scriptures, but imagine walking alongside him and seeing the great things that happen, 
are seeing this kind of, this powerful man of God walk up to kings of Israel and say uh, a, re- a rebuke, an admonishment, to, to hold back the reins, to raise um, a, a widow's son from the dead, to bring down fire from heaven. That's not your average boss, uh, at least as I understand it. This would have been a remarkable partnership between Elijah and Elisha. And it would have been the A-team for sure. And uh, I've worked in great teams and I, I, I believe this is a great team to be a part of. I'm only a few weeks in still. But when you're in good teams, you don't want anything to happen to that team. You kind of hold on dearly unless, unless someone sort of disappears and then it's no longer the A-team and you've got the risk of trying to find someone like that again. And so here we have a story of fearing losing what we have on earth because Elisha is getting a little bit anxious. Did you see that in the story? If, um, if you're just with me in 2 Kings 2 verse 2, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. That's just an average day for the prophet. Uh, But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, which is a bold statement, is it not? I will not leave you. Okay, so he's a little bit clingy. He wants to stay with Elijah. I kind of get that. But then he gets a little snappy. Verse 3, the company of the prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Okay, so they're clued in to the story behind the story. Elisha says, yes, I know, so be quiet. I don't want to talk about it. Okay, he's getting a little snappy, um, but I guess he's anxious, not, not just because Elijah's going to leave him, but I think actually more profoundly, he's anxious that the power of Elijah will leave Israel. Because remember, Israel are in the darkest of times. They have had not, ha- had not one good king since the kingdom split. In fact, not only have they not had a good king, their kings worship Baal. And Elijah feels at times that he's the only one that's following God. And so he is desperate for a powerful word of God to actually bring Israel back to God. And he's looking at Elijah doing these amazing things and he's an apprentice and he's like, you can't go now. There's work to be done. We need God's power. And just to build this towards a climax, Elijah divides the waters of the Jordan, a total flashback to Moses and his great epic power as Israel... um, exodus out of Egypt, Elijah would have been like, are you serious? You're amazing. You're just, you're just part of the waters. Don't go. Elijah can see this fear and says, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? That's a pastoral comment, is it not, from the master? What can I do for you to ease your pain? Well, his answer, Elisha's answer reveals the depth of the concern, not just that Elijah's going to leave, but as I said, he's lamenting the loss of God's power through Elijah because Elisha asks uh, for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He is asking that the same power that was at work in Elijah would be at work in him. He is asking for spiritual power and the responsibility to lead Israel back to God and that is a profound ask, is it not? It's not kind of like, oh, I'd like some of that magic. He wants to move Israel's heart back to God and he would know the kind of depth of the issues that he would face if he asked for that. Here is a man who is faithful to God and ready to take on massive responsibility because of God's glory. The double portion is not a greedy thing, it's actually sort of a hark back to the birthright of Jewish families because the firstborn son would receive a double blessing, a double portion as they continue the sort of the mantle of that family. So Elijah is asking to continue the story in the same way that the firstborn child would of the story of, of the family. He's going to be big, right? Like here he is asking his master to take on all that Elijah's been doing, that God would bless him 
with the same spirit to continue the same story of heaven and earth colliding. Jesus' disciples also feared losing Jesus, did they not? When Jesus spoke about the Son of Man must die and rise again, they were quick to say, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. (laughs) They feared losing their guy, losing the A-team, the guy who rallied the 12 together. They were fearful, and even more so as that day approached. But did not Jesus also give them a great blessing of the Holy Spirit, not just Elijah's spirit, but the Holy Spirit? the third person of the Godhead, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth such that we can now worship 2,000 years later on the other side of the world here in Newtown. God's story is continuing not because we're awesome but because his spirit has been at work through his people. And now the promise that Jesus gave to comfort the disciples is also a promise for us that we would receive the same Holy Spirit to be a part of the same story, to see heaven and earth overlap to his glory. Is that not comforting? Especially in times when we feel like we're trapped by all the earthly pressures around us, when we can't see beyond the world around us to the great cosmic reality of things, where God's glory seems to be hidden from us and yet he gives us the promise of His Spirit, a merciful promise that He would be at work in us, that all of our stories would be sewed up together to form one great story of heaven on earth. Of course, fulfilled when Jesus returns. And it's just awesome when we consider, just for a moment, that we're a part of that story, even here this morning. And indeed, God's story does continue in this story of Elijah And my point number two, heaven on earth is more glorious than we expect because, sure, Elijah just parted the waters and that's pretty cool and stuff, but Elisha was not prepared for what happened next and perhaps we weren't as we read the passage. Verse 11, just all happens in one verse, as they were walking along and talking together, just an everyday kind of thing, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Okay. Elijah gives us, this episode gives us an incredible window into the cosmic reality of heaven and earth that is far beyond just the everyday cause and effect of this world. In fact, if heaven wasn't a part of the grand story, Elijah would have shared some wisdom, just died, got buried, and Elisha would have continued the great work. No, but something much greater happens to actually take us beyond the normal things, to say, no, God is in this, and there is a reality bigger than what we can see and touch. Because what we do have is this incredible scene with fiery chariots and whirlwind and Elijah disappears into heaven, into the skies as it were. You couldn't see this and just go, mm, that was cool. <laughs> you, you would see this and go, oh my God. In fact, that's kind of what he does. He says, my father, this is Elijah saying, my father, my father. He is like in awe of what's happened, giving glory to God, kind of, but also kind of this exacerbated kind of OMG. He also says, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, which is a funny little phrase, and commentators are not exactly sure what to do with it, which means I'm not really kind of quite confident either. Perhaps, perhaps it's a, it's a military metaphor, like horses and chariots, that's an image of power and strength. And I think what's happening here is Elisha is saying, the power of Israel is in the prophets. That's the, that's the only place that our power resides, not in the king's no, no, in the prophets, and the fiery horsemen and chariots have just taken the great prophet away. 
and back to his lament that God's power is actually being removed from Israel and he'd be left all alone. But instead, Elisha is no, no, not really anxious anymore. He awaits for the blessing of the double portion of the spirit he's asked for. In fact, Elisha will be propelled from this scene to actually take up the mantle and become the great prophet of Israel. And he would need that strength to face Israel's worsening predicament as they continue to turn away from God. In fact, Elisha would go on to do twice as many miracles as Elijah. It's interesting, isn't it? As we jump back to our New Testament passage, and I'm seeing the two in parallel here, Jesus' disciples were about to face their most difficult times. As Jesus approached the time when he said the Son of Man would die, were they not fearful, not understanding the significance of what was happening before them? And how did Jesus respond? How did he bless them in mercy because of their fears? He didn't say, just don't worry about it, it'll be all right. No, no, in God's mercy, God gave the disciples a window into the same cosmic reality of things, the reality of heaven and earth, because Jesus is actually transfigured on the Mount of Olives before the disciples so that they could actually get a glimpse to the true reality of who Jesus was. Jesus was not just a dude who kind of walked around uh, Galilee, kind of dishing out some pearls of wisdom or even kind of caring for people. He did all that, but he was the son of God. He was divine and his glory was revealed for a moment for the sake of spurring on the disciples to say, there is more to this than you can possibly imagine now, but let me just show you a glimpse. Let me give you a window into the reality of heaven and earth. And would that not have greatly spurred on the disciples and strengthened them for the cause of this great story? You can't keep on living for the world alone if you've had a glimpse of heaven. You just couldn't. Elijah's ascension, Jesus' transfiguration, these windows propel their disciples to keep on going. So what what about us? Uh, Will your pastor ascend into heaven with fiery chariots and stuff to kind of give you a little bit of a step up? Uh, I hadn't planned that today. Would, uh, Would I be kind of transfigured before you to show there's more to this world than what you just see with your hands and eyes? Um, Well, I hadn't planned that either, but it's possible, I suppose. No, are these windows not for us as well? As we read the Word of God, the Scriptures, as we trust the reality of that these are true events, and you can look at the evidence for the resurrection, there really is a resurrection-shaped dent in history, we can push into that and say, that really happened. I believe that really happened, and therefore there must be a greater reality to the world than just what we can see and touch. But even more than that, has God not blessed us with the Spirit? As I said, He's already promised us the spirit that he poured upon his disciples to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the world, that same spirit that works in us, so that when we gather, the writer of Hebrews can say, when you come to church, you have not just come to a social club, a community group, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And and that means, just to lift the expectations of church a little bit here, that means when people come together in the name of Jesus... We should expect to go, wow, there's actually more going on to my week, to my life, to this world than what I can see and touch. I feel God at work in this. I feel lifted up by His Word. I feel God's presence in the love of His people. I feel nurtured by the very Word of God. And we don't always feel this, but God tells us there is a greater reality to things and we should expect to be fed with the truth of His Word and the power of His Spirit. I want people around us in this community 
to get a glimpse of the reality of heaven and earth, the fullness of all things. So that as I interact with them, as I converse with people, as I love people, I would love them to be able to walk away and scratch their head and say, there is something more going on here. I would love people to be able to come to church and say, there is something more going on here. We are the image of Christ to the world. And just as Elisha, with great boldness, asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, might we also press into the promise of the Holy Spirit that we would be his people in a world that desperately needs him. We should never lose sight of the grand vision of God's kingdom, of the rejoining of heaven and earth, and seek to image that kingdom to the world. But my third point is a little strange, I suppose, because as we zoom out a little bit from this awesomeness, like what we've just seen in Elijah ascending and in Jesus being transfigured, you go, wow, that's amazing. And you zoom out just a little bit and it just kind of seems a little bit foolish and weird again. Because just after you kind of zoom out from, from the, the one and two kings narrative, do you know how many good kings came as a result of Elijah and Elisha's work? Do you know how many revivals kind of were sparked in Israel because of Elijah and Elisha's work? None. Nothing. And it would look like, at a human level, that their work was a failure. And you kind of get why Elijah went into this kind of depressive slump in 1 Kings 19. He felt like he was the only one, that what he was doing wasn't counting for anything. And even for all this awesome stuff, fire coming down from heaven, disappearing into heaven, for all of that stuff... It was not enough to turn the heart of God's, of, of Israel's people. And, it, and the same with the disciples. They look at the transfigured Jesus and they're like, wow. And then a few days later, he's on the cross and they're like, what? How do we make sense of that? Because what looks to be glorious at one level looks completely foolish and like a failure in another level. Well, the joining of heaven and earth is both more glorious than we expect and more foolish than we might expect. Let's go back to the transfiguration a little bit because as we read in that story from Matthew, there is Jesus transfigured in awesomeness, his, his robe blinding white as his glory is revealed, as his true nature is revealed. There's two people standing beside him. Who are they? Elijah and Moses. Could you imagine what that conversation might have been like? Hey guys, how you doing? Haven't seen you for a while. No, no, I'm not sure exactly what it would have been like that. But I, I think it might have been something along the lines, if I could just, just postulate a little bit, maybe heretically. Um, Jesus might have said, like, thank you for your faithful efforts. You guys really served God, thank you. Uh, and yet it wasn't enough to turn the hearts of the people back to my father. That sucks. But I'm going to see that story through. I'm going to take on every failure. I'm going to take on the human heart. And I'm going to look like I failed. I'm going to take on failure and die and then rise again. I want to bring this story home. I want to join heaven and earth. Because that's what happened. While it looked foolish, Jesus on the cross, the disciples would have been despairing. Three days later, he rose victorious to show the reality of all things, that Jesus really is Lord of all, that there really is heaven and earth and he really is joining the two and he really is at work in us by his spirit to see that story come to its full completion so that when he returns, that new heavens and the new earth might be a place where God and his people rejoice together forever. And that's weird, is it not? But it's beautiful. The human heart longs for eternity and it's an offer 
And the story of Elijah in all its weirdness and in all its glory is pointing us to Jesus and the reality of all things. I just want to finish by touching on the weirdness, actually, because every time you come across a weird bit of Scripture, I want you to be reminded that the story is pushing you beyond yourself. The story is not about you. It's about God, who is the God of all things. And we should expect Him to do things that are out of the ordinary. As C.S. Lewis once wrote in an essay called The Weight of Glory, he says, we don't interact with mere human beings, sort of in a naturalistic framework. Every person you interact with are being transformed into their future glory self or into their nightmarish self. And that's a heavy thing to plot to think about. Except he's reminding us that everyone is on a journey in this grand story of heaven and earth. How might we take up the mantle in this story? How might we be bold enough to ask God to entrust to us the responsibilities of being in this story? And yet, every time we fail to do our part in the story... God is merciful in Jesus to restore us, to renew us, as even our lives are part of this transformative story. Every time we come across a weird bit in Scripture, it pushes us beyond the bounds of respectability. Religion shouldn't be kind of bogged down into suburban sort of respectability. No, the weirdness of Scripture actually pushes us beyond that, that we might see the fuller reality of things. The kind of weirdness of Scripture prompted people like Brother Andrew to smuggle millions of Bibles across the Chinese border at great risk to himself. The weirdness of Scripture pushes us beyond ourselves, so we have people like the Cox family who left CIG a while ago and, uh, and worked for so long in South America, even though they're coming back now. It, it changes the way we work. We don't work for the weekend, we work for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just for our boss, we have a greater boss. The weirdness of Scripture pushes us beyond ourselves so that we might even relate to people differently. We might care for people that others just walk on by. All this weirdness of Scripture pushes us towards a greater reality of things than we could have imagined. And so we throw ourselves before this great God and say, all glory to you. We want to be part of your story. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your awesomeness, for your glory, for your love for us, that despite our failures, despite our tendency to turn away from you, in your mercy, you have allowed us to be part of your plan and your glory. Father, we ask that you would continue to make manifest the full reality of things in our life to spur us on, and we ask that you would do this actually for the sake of others also, so that they might see our lives and be prompted to see a glimpse of you. Father, we ask that for, for both Newtown and Erskineville churches, that we would see people come to know you because of your great work in us. We ask this not for our sake, but for your glory. Amen. Listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. 
For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.